What a blessing it is that we've been granted the privilege of assembly today. We, in fact, are so excited about verses like John 4, 24 that reminds us that God's a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. And so as we've assembled today on this first day of the week, we certainly are mindful of the privilege that's ours to pour into God our heartfelt feelings of appreciation and to worship Him with the truth and spirit that He would demand. I might well begin with at least a brief announcement in that. Uh, I'll be holding a gospel meeting starting next Sunday at the Baghdad Church of Christ in Jackson County. And so Brother Dennis will be the one that will be taking care of the Bible study class and the worship services next Sunday. Uh, Denise and I will certainly miss being with you, but we certainly would covet your prayers in light of that gospel meeting, that things in it will proceed in a way to glorify the kingdom of God and all that would go with, with that wonderful opportunity. During this year, we have in fact set before ourselves an opportunity to reflect upon various controversial topics as it often confronts those of the church. And so it is the case that during this year we've looked at a lot of things like withdrawing fellowship and baptism. And although those really aren't controversial based on the way the Bible teaches it, men oftentimes have painted them as being controversial. Today we're going to give some thought to the Holy Spirit. I think we each are well aware that the Holy Spirit has been a source of great discussion and quite a bit of controversy, at least from the writings of various men. This opening slide will be a gentle introduction to some of what we're about to see in light of our study this morning, but I hope that we can each be reminded of the sweetness and the power and the beauty connected to the teaching of the Bible on the subject of the Holy Spirit. First of all, we would be quick to say that many questions about the Spirit might be asked. I would be quick to say, too, we will not cover all of these in detail in the limited time we have this morning. One could preach many a month's worth of sermons and series touching the subject. But we could ask questions such as, what's the nature of the Holy Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit? What's the work of the Spirit? In addition to that, does He work differently now than He did in the, say, previous days, a couple of thousand years ago. Furthermore, what about the features about the way He indwells Christians? There's no question the New Testament teaches that in some fashion, but what are the details of it? This morning, why don't you and I simply seek to put to rest some of those controversial issues that can trouble the mind of individuals, but you and I will simply ask, as did Paul, what saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. There are well over 200 passages of Scripture in the Bible that directly make reference to the Holy Spirit. And there are many more indirect ones. So today, as you have your Bible handy, why don't we start looking at some of them. And I thought that this first section, we would simply do this. What's the nature of the Holy Spirit? What might we glean from some rather basic observations found in the Word of God? First of all, in Colossians 2.9, as well as Romans 1.20, I'll just note the second one of that group, the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And the King James Version uses that word Godhead. The actual original word carried with it the thrust, as you can see on that slide, of the divine nature, that which is of divinity that which is of deity. And so in that place, you notice that men are without excuse. 
the handiwork, the appreciation of the existence of God, all of that evidence is all the way around us. Can't you and I then understand rather early on that we can begin to notice in speaking about those who possess this divine nature, who are these beings? Who are these? The next point I would invite you to notice is we transition to the very first chapter in all the Bible. We notice that the very first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It's a fascinating thing to notice that word God in the original language is plural. It is not singular. Now you and I know what it means to have a plural noun. It identifies there's more than one possessing the attributes that that word is describing. And so in the very first verse of the Bible, we have reference to God, but the plural noun is in fact the one that's employed. But that's not the only place. You may notice, furthermore, in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. And several times in that verse, a plurality is mentioned, but that was, you see, before man was created. Who was it that was under discussion when the word us was used in a verse like that? Who was with God at that time? You and I know, for example, that though angels were there, apparently, they had no part in creation. They do not have the power to affect creation that way. An angel, you see, is not God. Furthermore, on that slide, I've called to your attention this. There are 32 occurrences of that word Elohim in Genesis chapter 1. 32 times in one chapter. You and I have already noticed the plural thrust of it in verse number 1. And as you and I look through the remaining chapters of the Bible, we find a little bit short of 1,200 occurrences. We aren't left to wonder. The Bible, you see, is the book of God. It's the Word of God. And it presents to us not only His nature and His essence, but the characteristics of what information you and I need to know about Him. As you close that slide with me, there are those in our world today who thus would immediately say, well, though that plural word may well be there, are you saying that you believe in there's more than one God? There are those who would directly say to you and me, you folks believe there's more than one God. Now you and I don't believe that. In Genesis, or rather Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, there is one God. And Paul would highlight, would he not, in Ephesians 4 6, there is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We stand powerfully upon the teaching of verses such as them. But on this next slide, that does lead us to ask, what then have we at least introduced? That reference to God and the plural nature of it, isn't it true that the Word of God thus sets before us that there is God the Father? The Father possesses the attributes of deity such as eternality, such as full omnipotence, such as full omniscience. But by the same token, God the Son possesses those attributes. Quite often in the Word of God, we encounter that God the Son possesses this eternality, and He was worthy of being worshipped, and He received worship on several occasions while He was here, of course, tabernacling in the flesh. But isn't it also true that there is God the Spirit? 
you can well notice several verses of Scripture which I've invited you to consider in light of each one of them. And as they testify to us about God the Spirit, isn't it true that Paul mentioned each of them in Ephesians 4? There is one Spirit, and there is one Lord, and there is one God. The fact is, there are three that possess the attributes and the characteristic qualities of deity. Now, they are perfectly united in mission, in motive. They are perfectly united in the characteristics of their essence. But nonetheless, the Bible identifies that there is three. And there are some sweet places in the Bible wherein we see them. Would you recall with me the baptism of our Lord? Jesus the Son was here upon earth. But God the Father is the one who from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And God the Spirit's the one that descended in the form of a dove. As all of those details are presented, the three joined together in beautiful harmony to provide evidence and witness of the events surrounding the baptism of our Lord and His identity. But you notice the Spirit, as you'll notice near the bottom of that slide. We're reminded then that as the Bible discusses the Spirit, could you and I pause long enough to notice the Holy Spirit in some ways has fallen on difficult times. Many, many books have been written about the Spirit, who He is, what He does, and the way in which He accomplishes it. And there are many assertions made in those books which aren't truly consistent with the teaching of the Bible. Our interest today is to simply let the Bible do the talking. And this next slide is one in which I'm going to at least pose some of what can be read in various writings of men. What exactly is the Holy Spirit? There are those who would say He's kind of like a force of electricity or magnetism. So you and I know that magnets will either repel one another or attract one another depending on the orientation. And there are those who've likened the Spirit to that. What an insult to the Spirit. There are those who've likened it to a kind of influence somewhat like a power or a divine fluid, if you please. May I again say, what an insult to the Spirit. The Spirit's none of those things. It is the Bible that would teach us in rather great directness about the characteristics of the Spirit. And so, as you'll notice near the middle, toward the bottom part of that slide, why don't we turn to some verses in the Bible. In the closing verse to the book of 2 Corinthians, we have all three of the members, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, mentioned in light of Paul's closing salutations to that church at Corinth. Paul was rather mindful of the work of the Spirit as well as the reality of both the Father and the Son, and he included each of them in the same passage as he addressed those closing thoughts to that congregation. Now, doesn't that remind us the Spirit is every bit as real, the Spirit is every bit um, as much a person as are the first two. In addition to that, even Jude made mention of each. In Jude verses 20 and 21, we have there the love of God highlighted in the reality of both the Spirit as well as the Son. It might be in that connection. Perhaps it's time to let Jesus Himself provide us a tremendous commentary on all of this. Would you please be turning with me to the 16th chapter of John? 
In that 16th chapter, which was the lesson text, that was the one read in our hearing earlier this morning, may I direct your attention to verses 13 and following in that chapter. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak." And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. Now I've simply read a small number of the verses, but now let's reflect upon them, shall we? Now our Savior, the wonderful Son of God, while here in discourse on the night before He was crucified. He was in conversation with those apostles, and at that time and to them, revisiting verse number 13, He said, How be it when He... You and I know quite well the pronoun He refers to a person. You don't use He to refer to a tree, or a tractor, or a car, or a stick, or a log. He identifies a person. Jesus made reference to the Spirit of truth by the word He. I hope that you and I will do justice to the nature of the Holy Spirit by referring to Him this way. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come. Notice, He was able to come. He had the volition and the enterprise to come. And then it says, He will guide you into all truth. The Spirit had access to the perfectness of absolute truth. Jesus wasn't talking about some man coming. He wasn't talking about some great epiphany of knowledge due to men coming. This Spirit of truth is the Holy Spirit. And not only that, it says He will guide you into all truth. He had the power, the capacity, and the means to guide into all truth. But then the Lord said this, for he shall not speak of himself. He's capable of speaking. People can speak. Again, trees don't talk. Leaves don't talk. Tractors don't talk. But you and I notice that this spirit of truth had the attributes of personage. And then the Lord said this, But whatsoever he shall hear, he not only was able to speak, he was able to hear. And then it says, That shall he speak, for he shall show you things to come. The Lord has given us an amazing reflection upon the basic nature and character of the Holy Spirit. In fact, near the bottom of that slide, I've highlighted some of the numbers of these pronouns. Five times Jesus used the word he or him in reference to the Spirit. Furthermore, in light of himself or him... In the passage before us, we see nine occurrences. Isn't it a bit significant then that as Jesus made reference to the Holy Spirit, certainly the Spirit was not merely an influence, not merely some kind of a power, not something like an inanimate force, but this Holy Spirit, you see, was a personage that could hear and speak and direct and guide, and furthermore, that was referred to by the pronoun he. Thus, I hope that you and I will also make the choice to refer to Him this way. Never use it, 
Never use some kind of inanimate pronoun, but refer to him with he and him and himself and other words much like that because that's what Jesus did. Isn't it a bit interesting as you close that particular slide with me? This first observation in highlighting the basic nature of the Spirit only leads us to appreciate another one. I thought I would summarize some of the verbs used to characterize the activities of which the Spirit is capable. And I choose this number not to say it's exhaustive, but to say that as you and I look at them, I think we'll be impressed as to what the Spirit does. For example, in 1 Timothy 4, 1, The Spirit speaketh expressly. The Spirit is able to convey information by way of speaking in some fashion. You and I will shortly ask, how does He do that speaking? Does He talk to you and me individually, sharing something to me that He might not share to you or vice versa? Absolutely not. He does not convey information like that. Not only that, the Spirit teaches 1 Corinthians 2.13. In fact, in that context, Paul, to that congregation, points out to them that you and I only know things of God because the Spirit revealed it to us. That sounds a great deal like Isaiah 55, doesn't it? Where in verses 8 and 9, our thoughts are not His because His ways are far higher than ours. And yet the Spirit conveys to us that which is the mind of God. Thirdly, the Spirit sins, Acts 13, 4. When Paul and Barnabas went on that first missionary journey, who sent them? The Spirit. Thus, here were those, namely those terrific servants of the Lord who responded to the direction the Spirit offered them. The Spirit sent them. Why don't we pause long enough to say, doesn't all of this so far sound like things a person can do? A person can speak. A person can send. A person can teach. How about the fourth one? Forbid. In Acts 16, verse 6, we find Paul directly asserting the Spirit forbade us. In other words, it restrained us from doing what we otherwise would have done. Can people restrain? We as parents know very well about that. Son, don't do that. Or daughter, don't do that. We also restrain. The Spirit restrains. Fifthly, the Spirit searches and knows. You and I know what it's like to search for something that you and I are interested in finding. The Spirit searches, and He knows. In the sixth place, the Spirit helps, Romans 8.26. You see, in light of our prayers, it says, The Spirit helpeth us in light of those infirmities. Number seven, the Spirit loves, Romans 15.30. People love you see, we're trying to highlight the fact that all of these prescriptions, in light of the description of the Spirit, reminds us He's not an it. He's a Him, capable of carrying out those kinds of things we would appreciate that a person, admittedly a divine person, is able to bring about. Number eight in that list, you can lie to the Spirit. You and I remember Ananias and Sapphira, isn't it true that that's what they did? Peter expressly on that occasion said, You have lied to God in that you've lied to the Holy Spirit. 
you and I thus have to be mindful that all of these matters perhaps lead to the final couple that I've invited you to notice. The Spirit can be grieved. Oh, it's true. You and I, by our actions, can cause a degree of anguish or pain on His part. He does not like it when we're unfaithful, and He doesn't like it when we choose to rebel against God. By our actions, we can grieve Him. The next one, insulted. You and I can insult the Spirit. Now, in, in, in Hebrews 10, 29, they did it on that occasion by the way in which they had again chosen to rebel against the nature of the truth that God had revealed. Finally, the Spirit can be resisted. You and I can choose to not follow His direction, and we can, in fact, oppose Him. I say all that to say the Holy Spirit is a divine personality. He's God. And you and I can do all these things to Him. We appreciate these attributes of His work. This next slide will now direct our attention to it would seem what the Bible conveys as the central work, the major activity of which the Spirit has been involved. For example, isn't it true that many times in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit empowered people to accomplish certain things by revealing to them what the will of God was by way of a few examples of those things. In Exodus 35, beginning in verse 30, you and I have the rather intriguing record of a man named Bezalel. You might ask who this was. Bezalel was the person who was over as a superintendent in regard to the construction efforts in the tabernacle. I suppose all of us remember that God had a rather intricately detailed prescription and blueprint for the tabernacle. The dimensions were fixed. The furniture was described. How were they to make all of this and do so in a way consistent with what was pleasing to God? God equipped Bezalel to do it. And the Spirit is the one that did it. And thus he revealed to Bezalel the particulars and the details of what Bezalel needed to accomplish. And Bezalel did it. Not only that, in the book of Judges we have a couple of examples that the Spirit empowered the man known as Gideon in light of his battle against the Midianites. We aren't given all the details about the military strategy that Gideon used, but it would seem that the Holy Spirit directed him in light of the particular strategy that would be successful. Later, we notice in the days of Jephthah, the Spirit again was the one that empowered Jephthah in light of his battle against the Ammonites. David was empowered by the Spirit in the days of Samuel. So much so that the details of 1 Samuel 16, 13 remind us of when David was anointed to be the next king and the Spirit came on him from that day to the remainder of his life. I suppose in all of that it would be time to at least note one of the words then that David mentioned. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. In other words, what David shared, what he penned, what he wrote in light of Scripture, he says, the Spirit's the one that gave it to me. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. I was only the mechanism, the medium through which 
those words were shared. I hope that gives you and me a rather high view of the Scriptures that God has delivered to us. David wasn't merely saying what he thought, what his opinion might have been, or what his speculation was. He was affirming God's Spirit spoke through me. That sounds much like the same sentiment that Jeremiah used in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 7, 8, and 9. And so it is, in light of all of that, that this next slide will be a rather extensive development of this concept of revelation. What's the Spirit doing for you and me today? What is it that He has done? I hope this slide will at least cast somewhat of a spotlight as we think somewhat about these various passages of Scripture. First of all, as you and I think about the days of the Christ, we're told in Matthew 10, verse number 20, that the Spirit is the one that spoke through the apostles as they went on the limited commission. So as Jesus equipped and sent them out, it was the Spirit that gave them the powerful message of truth about the Christ and His kingdom that they were, in fact, to, to share on those occasions. Not only that, in John 14, 26, Jesus rather directly told those apostles, the Spirit will bring to your remembrance all things that, that in fact are needful. All things for this particular time. And you and I notice immediately that there was a bit of a distinction. They didn't have to study on those matters the same way you and I do because the Spirit equipped them in that rather special way. Called into their remembrance, even in moments of being tested and persecuted, what in fact they were able and should in fact say. The next point then would be the one that you and I highlighted earlier. That text in John 16, verse number 13. Having made those points of observation, I've listed several particulars at the bottom of that slide that I hope remind us that the Spirit has been critically involved in revealing the will of God to the human family. That happened in the days of the Old Testament, and it continued to happen while the Lord was here on earth, and it continues, of course, to take place today, but in a very wonderfully revealed fashion to you and to me. In fact, if we could simply observe at this time, what that thought is going to lead us to know is going to be this one. I've shared it with you on this next slide. And may I ask you to note with me the text in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. It may well be that Peter has given us the clearest of the assertions on this particular point, and the text reads like this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now let's walk through that pair of verses and make a few observations as we proceed. Peter said in verse 20, Here's something we all must know. Knowing this first. This is a basic attribute of knowledge. It's a basic understanding in light of those that would be faithful to God. And it goes like this. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means no person is able just to pick up, lift some verse out of the Bible, and use it to his or her own means. 
it's not of any private interpretation. And he explains in the next verse, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. The Word of God, you see, is not such that men of their own understanding and of their own prescription simply set forth what they, for the moment, in their limited knowledge, understood. They were presenting inspired Scripture. They were presenting that which was and is the Word of God. In fact, look at how that verse ends. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It is the Spirit then that revealed, that brought to them that which they wrote, superintending that which they delivered to the human family. It was the work of the Spirit revealing those matters to them. And therefore, you'll notice in another essence we appreciate that is the Spirit conveys to us. It's likened unto being moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says the Spirit was doing to them. The original word carries the thought of what is often used to describe a ship. As a ship, you know, in that day and time, they had to depend on sails, and the wind would carry that ship in the direction, of course, that it would go. That original word carries that significance. The Spirit moved them. The Spirit's the one that directed and thus provided the instance and the emphasis for that which they wrote. I hope we are very appreciative then of this wonderful revelatory work of the, of, of the Holy Spirit. You and I hold in our hands the very Word of God. We hold in our hands that which the Spirit has made available. Didn't Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 1, Thy words have I put in mine heart. You notice he didn't say your thoughts, your suggestions, your influences. Jeremiah pointed out that it's the Word of God that had been revealed. And, of course, the Spirit is the one that made that possible. I've listed there near the bottom of that slide several pieces from the Word of God that remind us again about the beauty and the power and the sweetness connected to this revelation of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 14, you and I can know things of heaven because the Spirit has revealed them to us. In Galatians 5, 16 and following, you and I can know the basic character of what it's like to be in the church only because the Spirit has made it known to us. Surely we could add to that. It's the Spirit who has revealed to us the closing two chapters of the Revelation. What will heaven be like? None of us would know were it not for the revelation of the Spirit. And oh, doesn't it make us want to go there? Doesn't it encourage in us an emphasis and desire to want to be where God is, where the Son is, and where the Spirit is? Is it any wonder then that all of that would allow us to close our lesson with a very brief set of remarks? It is true that in the early days, of course, of the church, you and I know that there were things that were somewhat different because there were miraculous gifts that were available then which are not available now. May I ask, who equipped those miraculous gifts? We already know that answer. Several times in the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul said it's the gifts of the Spirit. 
The Spirit's the one who gave those particular gifts, like the gift of tongues and the gift of faith and the gift of the other matters that are described. But you see, the Spirit in equipping them has now done us an even greater measure of work by making available to us. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13 that the greater thing is now before us when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. The work of the Spirit today in providing you and me with the Word of God, we have all the guide for the church, all the guide for our life as Christians, all the guide for that which will lead us to heaven. We need never fear that there's some part missing, that there's something that the Spirit chose not to include. I know that you and I are aware that there have on many occasions been those who've written additional books, sometimes asserting that they are important, even needful and essential. You and I know somewhat better than that, for Peter's put it like this in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Didn't he say, at that time, and to those precious brethren long ago, all things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed. All of it. The Spirit has done His job. He has set forth to us 66 Bible books, 39 of them in the Old Testament, and in His preservation of them through the ages, we learn about matters in which God showed and interacted with those of that age and time. But now there's 27 New Testament books. They govern this Christian age in which you and I now dwell, and that's among those books that will be opened on that day of judgment, judging your life and mine by what this says. Isn't it sweet then to note that as we think about the Holy Spirit first on this conclusion page, I would point this out to you. The study of the Spirit has not only been encouraging... It's been very rewarding because we learn the Spirit is a divine personality, Him, He. And in so doing, we are careful to refer to Him that way. And we appreciate that He certainly has all the attributes of deity and He has revealed to us the very mind of God. You and I would have no idea about the mind of God and that which He wants and that which He desires and that which is His will unless the Spirit had told us and made it available to us. And aren't we thankful? And that's one of the reasons we consider it so vital for periods of Bible study, for example. We know that in worship, we lift high the banner of service in every way to God. But in Bible study periods, we enjoy the thought of learning more about the actual Word of God that the Spirit has provided so that we can know His will and be more apt to do His will. As we close this particular lesson today, the Spirit is a tremendous blessing that has sent forth to you and me in His role revealing to us the very mind and will of God. That will of God includes the plan of salvation. It includes the reality of the church and faithful service to the Lord in the church. If there's someone in this assembly today who perhaps has reached an age of knowing wrong from right and has never yet named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, it is the Spirit who has revealed the following. It's necessary to believe on the name of the Christ absolutely as the Son of God. It's necessary to make repentance of sins, changing one's mind toward them with a the goal of one changing one's behavior and conduct. 
confession of the name of Christ and being buried in baptism for the remission of sins. As the Word of God testifies to this, we are not resting this upon any culture of the ancient era, but upon a thus saith the Lord. It could also be, though, that once one becomes a Christian, we can so conduct ourselves as to not be faithful and to thus fall back into a place in which we're not saved. We also want you to know, just as surely as the Spirit highlights it, that the Lord still loves you. He loves all of us. And in that case, He pleads with us to come to our senses, just as did the prodigal son in Luke 15, 24. And so it is that in that case, we are demanded to confess those errors, to make repentance of them. If we could help anybody today in that light, it's only because the Spirit has given us this word in which we would make that invitation available. Brother Larry has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could be of some assistance... We wish to do that. This hymn of invitation offers a convenient, opportune time. If we could help in any way, won't you let us know while together we stand and while we sing.